I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this is Inside Kurdistan. I've decided to start reaching out to some of the fixers of this region and dedicate the next few episodes to profile some of the journalists who I would say are the most responsible for any type of story in KRI and Iraq uh, finding coverage and attention internationally. For those of you who don't know what a fixer is, a fixer is a type of journalist who is locally based and has built up connections with all sorts of community members uh, from everywhere in the area they're from, uh, from everything from local authorities to displaced people in camps, uh, from conflict to culture to investigations. Fixers are there to facilitate international stories happening here and all over the world. Uh, I love their stories and their anecdotes, and I thought it'd be nice to bring in some more uh, to talk about their work and perspectives on their past and current coverage. So this week, I'm kicking things off with Halan Akoy. Uh, Halan started fixing and reporting on the ISIS occupation in Mosul, uh, but he comes from a very modest background, uh, working on his family's farm from a young age. And we talked about how he found his way into fixing and how he's grown as a reporter uh, from his beginnings in covering the front lines to investing in more nuanced coverage on the history and culture of Iraq. And so with that, here's our conversation. So when I was 9, 10, and 11, my dad used to take me to the farm and uh, uh, shave my hair and, and force me to do some work that I was not very happy about at the time. But now I am very grateful that it's it made me who I am today, and no matter how difficult of a situation I could be in, I can manage. Do you, okay, so it was a chicken farm, correct? Yes. All right, so you started uh, working during the summers, and then he made you a driver eventually. Yes, so... Walk uh, me through that. <laughs> okay, so I was working in the farm in the summers when I didn't have school, and then later we have uh, we had a situation that we needed to work and we couldn't afford. Um, so I started working as a driver between different cities when I was just 13, 14. Uh, and I used to drive between Duhok and Soran, Duhok and Rania to transport goods uh, when I was very young. Not smuggling exactly. It was somehow smuggling because <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were transporting chickens at the time when uh, there was uh, it was not allowed to transport chickens between governorates, and we were doing that when I was very young. And uh, I remember my younger brother, who was um, maybe twelve at that point. Um, one day he's he uh, he's driving back to Soran and one checkpoint one poli- one team of police they they stop him and and ask him who who are you who are you what are you doing and he says well this is my name and I'm transporting chickens to Soran and they said they the police guys tell him you know it's illegal you can't do this at this moment and he says I'm sorry but with our family is really poor I'm doing this to make a living. Long story short, they want to take him to the to the police base, but one of the police guys says, Sir, look at him. He's only 12, 13. He's working a job that a young, that an adult wouldn't want to do this job. Mm. And I'm sure he's doing this to support his family. You know what? I would suggest to let him go. And they let him go. Okay. Yeah. I'm amazed that his uh, feet could reach the pedals. 
Well, it was difficult in the beginning for him to reach the pedals. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> little blocks of wood on it. Yes, <laughs> like in Indiana Jones. Uh, you were he was twelve. You're fourteen. How many siblings do you have? I have uh, three siblings. Okay. One younger brother, two younger sisters. Okay. All right. So you are the oldest. Yes. All right. You have older sibling energy. Really? Yeah. Well, I yeah. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. You will. So you grew up. Okay. You grew up. Consistently on the farm, but you you also and um, this is an audio format, so I'm just going to point this out from the start. You have a you have a very formal kind of British lilt in your accent. Uh, that when I first met you, I was like, oh, he studied at a private school. Uh, is that the case? Yeah. Well, no, because uh, people here. Um, this is just a thing that I've kind of learned. For example, uh, Reco, our, our videographer on our team, is a good example of this. Is he has like a, a very American way of speaking because he learned English mainly on YouTube and Netflix and things like that. Ah, I American see. media. All right. And then the the Arabs and the Kurds that I meet who have a slight British twang, I can tell. Oh, okay, so you studied at an institution. Interesting. I I didn't know, but uh, yes. Uh, so I I learned English. I studied uh, everything middle school and high school in English. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why it's slightly in the British tone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I studied everything in English, and it's—I believe it's more formal. Yeah, you have a formal way of speaking. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I prefer that. Yeah, it—it—it uh, it, it sounds nicer. You have a better voice for radio than I do. I would. I would <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you have better voice than I do. Oh, I no, no, no. I speak way too fast and I have a lisp, and no, no, no. It's no good. <laughs> I wish I, ha- I wish I had came up in a British institute. You- <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were in Iraq and you had to study in a private school, yeah. then you would. So you, you started, um, let's get into that, because you started uh, working at nine years old, and then you also studied at this fancy private institution. I'm curious what that was like, because you have these, you know, at the private schools here, you have, you know, like you were saying, you have these Barzanis and, and you know, kids from, you know, Powerful families, influential backgrounds. That's very true. And then there's, there's you with the shaved head after summer. <laughs> well, I I was maybe not the poorest, but one of like the kids that were from the not from the richest, from the poorest families mm. at school. But um, uh, it was very nice uh, at my middle school and high school. We were friends, and most of my friends are the son of very powerful people in the country, all the way from. From the top, from Barzani's, from from the ministers, from generals, from Peshmerga generals. Um, so I I studied there. It was it was it was a bit difficult at at the beginning because as a family we were going through a rough time and we couldn't afford. But I thank my dad all the time that he he managed to to pay for my school even though my year uh, like my annual fee to the school was. Uh, uh, equivalent to one month of our expenses. Wow. How did, I mean, what did that sacrifice mean to, like, the family? I mean, how, this was clearly such a priority for him. Yes. Um, uh, it was incredible what he did for me to have a better education, to 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 study at a better institution, to have a brighter future, to to make me who I am today with the difficult times that he made me work at the farm and with the school that he put me in a prestigious school to to be able to study in a better school. Uh, it was a bit difficult for the family, but then after a few years, we got back on our foot and it was okay again. And you, you couldn't afford a formal university education uh, come like 18 years old? 
so when I when <laughs> when I graduated uh, high school, I couldn't afford to go to university because I didn't have money to pay for it. So I couldn't go to university for a couple of years. I worked and collected some money. Then I I I went to university after that. Mm-hmm. What did you study at university? I studied English literature. Hey, yes. there we go. Yeah, at the same time I was working as a fixer. Okay. Journalist. All yeah. right. So you, well, we'll get into this in a second. But you, you, your uh, desire for fixing came out of sort of an economic need uh, of sort of its interesting side work. At what point did it sort of dominate your life? At what point did it sort of fully take over? Because you told me that you, when you first really put your first foot into fixing seriously as like a full time thing, you owned a restaurant at the time. Yes, at the time I owned uh, a restaurant which I had opened with a with a friend of mine, and I had put all of my savings that I had saved through years uh, into that restaurant. And ISIS had just attacked uh, the country and had controlled some areas in the country, so economy was going really bad, was going down, bad and timing. it was very bad timing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, uh, so I was losing uh, at my restaurant and. One day, this opportunity came forward through a friend of mine that he needed me to uh, cover for him because he had agreed with a client to work with them, but then he has a family uh, emergency that he can't uh, go to work. And even I told him that, I'm sorry, but I, I have my work, my restaurant to run. Then he insisted that I go to cover for him because he knew I speak Arabic, I speak English, Kurdish. I had been to Mosul before. And I think he trusted me that I could do this job. Mm. So I started doing this job within the first week uh, because it was supposed to be around 10 days of work. It was economically, it was very good for me because it was uh, it was good work and the pay was good. But at the same time, when I weighed my options in life, uh, I had my, on one hand, I have my restaurant, which is doing fine but not very good and I have on the other hand I have this opportunity which is very interesting job that I am visiting different places different locations I am witnessing history firsthand with my own eyes with my angle on the ground Uh, I go to camps I go to the front line uh, so this is my first few days. Yeah. I go to front line. Second day, I go to the camps yeah. to meet uh, refugees. <laughs> Which, as we said before, that's the wrong order. <laughs> yes. but uh, So I got into this, and it was really interesting. Then I thought, this is, I believe this could be a very interesting path for me. And I continued doing this since then. Well, I'm curious about those first few days. What was that like? That must have been such a... Uh... It must have just been an, an insane leap from managing a restaurant to, to going to the front line in Mosul. Uh, what were those? Do you remember those days? Do, uh, do you have like core memories from from that time that you can still access, or, or have you pushed that all out? Or <laughs> I was very afraid. Yeah, because before I had worked in Mosul, but it had been maybe four or five years that I had not gone to Mosul uh, since. Mm. What what had happened before? Before when? Yeah, well, you you were you you mentioned before actually that you were, you'd done some work in Mosul as I think a driver. So I was yeah. I was I I, I was uh, a truck driver uh-huh. uh, and I was moving goods and food from Mosul to other governors Erbil, Soleimania, or Duhok, uh before 2011. Mm-hmm. 
And then when I went uh, for my first jobs as a, as a fixer, I was frightened because first day I am going to cover the war. I'm going to the front line. Mm. Uh, no experience. Uh, I don't know because also it was it was a bit of chaos. Like the front line was chaos. There was battle everywhere, smoke and airplane and gunfire. I was really afraid. I didn't know where I was. I felt a bit lost and, 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 and frightened to move forward because I didn't know what exactly uh, was, was, was in front of me. Um, but then we talked to Peshmerga, we talked to some soldiers. Uh, the second day we talked, we went to the camp, we talked to refugees, sorry, IDPs. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked to IDPs who had fled the city uh, and were living in the camps in this situation. Uh, I felt bad for the people. I felt that it's unfair what's happening to them. Uh, yeah, the, those were my first few days at this job. And uh, I'm curious, actually, uh, you know, your dad who had spent all that effort and money putting you through, uh, you know, this really great institution uh, where you learned such good English and now you're using that to put yourself in physical, you know, in, in harm's way, potentially. Uh, how did how did he feel when he found out that this is sort of the transition, the career transition that you were found, finding yourself in? I think... Um... Also, your mom. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, I, I was. I was trying to speak as as uh, for the family yeah. in total. Um, towards the beginning, I tried to avoid telling them where exactly I was going and what exactly is the situation at the place where I'm going to to cover either the war, uh, the battle, or the, the the camp. So, I would m I would tell them most of the time that I am the camp I was talking to uh, IDPs in the camp and I am not going to the front line because I didn't want to make uh, my family worry about my safety uh, until one day my mother <laughs> saw me on a live TV from the battle from the front lines and called me immediately hey Halan I just saw you on the front line you told me you were in the camp and I'm like yes mom but I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, um, I didn't tell you because I didn't want you to worry for me. Uh, yeah. Mm. Within accessing Mosul, uh, what is sort of the pattern of day-to-day -day existence on the front line? I mean, you there's all sorts of things with, like, for example, mobility. You have, for example, intersections where there are snipers uh, posted and things like that. So a lot of the time on the front line is spent waiting. So could you, like, sort of walk someone who doesn't have any idea about, like, fixing on a front line what that day-to-day -day existence is like? It is... Uh... You would have to be very informed and connected to the generals and officers in the area because it's them who know exactly what is the route, where is the safest, best route uh, possible. Mm -hmm. It's not safe, but safest possible at in the war to go to the location that you want to go. So the, the obstacles were a lot because first is the, the risk that you're risking your life. Second is... is um, the so you would drive down the road, then you would get somewhere that there would be a, a pile of uh, 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 soil on the street that is blocked because you can't go any more forward since ISIS had put IEDs there mm. and bombs. And at the end of the the street, there is uh, there are or there is ISIS sniper or snipers. 
so you would we would need to find a, a, a another way through the little alleys or streets to follow the army uh, to go to uh, the actual front line where we wanted to cover the war. Um, it was uh, most of the streets were destroyed either by IEDs or uh, bombardment uh, or by airstrikes. Mm -hmm. And it was the idea was to uh by by destroying the intersections and the streets was to block ISIS movement because ISIS had a lot of ready v beds like uh, explosive uh, cars that were ready to be uh, blown up to Iraqi forces or anyone who's not on the ISIS side um so this the streets were bombarded uh, to 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 limit their their uh, movement but also it was making our movement also difficult. Um, I think it was the the streets. ISIS snipers were very, very dangerous because you wouldn't know from where the bullet is coming. So you'd have to be very, very careful. Yeah. You were in the uh, Najaf unit and there were 250 soldiers uh, when you first came up, uh, came on following them as a fixer. And by the end of the conflict, there were 110. Yes. Yeah, I remember uh, when I first went with uh, two Najaf battalion where they were fight covering one of the areas uh, along with the other units to go forward to liberate areas from ISIS. The Najaf battalion, they had uh, around 250 men in the battalion. Uh, by the time the war was finished and the Mosul was liberated from ISIS, this battalion had only one, roughly 110 men left. Mm -hmm. Uh, the others, most of the ones who are missing were dead. A very small percentage were paralyzed or were uh, uh, injured and were in the hospital. Mm. So they lost almost 50% of their men at this war. And imagine, this is only one battalion. Yeah. So imagine other battalions, imagine other forces who were there, imagine the civilians who didn't have any gun to fight back or who couldn't find a safe place to, to protect themselves. A lot of people lo lost their lives in this brutal war. Uh, I hope it never comes back again. Mm. Something that you, uh, we, we talked about sort of the economic incentive for you to get into this kind of work, but you had, I think, a certain amount of personal investment as well. I mean, I, in general, I think uh, Iraqis are, are interested in, in were interested who, who assisted with fixing and reporting on Mosul because there is a personal investment in seeing that city get saved. Uh, but you you had an uncle in the Peshmerga uh, as well who was killed during yes. the conflict. Yeah. Unfortunately, my uncle was an officer in the Peshmerga and he was killed by ISIS militants. Uh, and his pictures as a Peshmerga officer were published on ISIS Twitter account mm -hmm. that they had managed to kill an infidel. Uh, so this was one that I wanted to fight ISIS mm -hmm. in my way. And secondly, I had worked in Mosul before. I had some friends in Mosul. I know Muslavi people, how nice they are. Yeah. So I wanted to nice. be on their... <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. So I wanted to be on their side to... To fight this all together, mm. yeah. How do you? I mean, after the, we'll, we'll zoom forward to the the end of the conflict. Uh, uh, how do you see the city now? Uh, I mean, obviously there, 
there's a myriad of different issues economically, and the rebuilding is, you know, it's been six years. It's still in the rebuilding process, and, um, you know, there's issues with corruption with the governor in the past and things like that. But where, where do you see Mosul as it stands now? I think it has improved a lot, mm-hmm. and it's in a very good condition with all the, you know, problems that it still has. But looking back where Mosul was before 2014, what Mosul was in during ISIS occupation and what Mosul faced and went through, Mosul and its city through the liberation, if we look at look back and, and look at all of these years, Mosul is doing great now. It has improved a lot. A lot of places have been reconstructed. The the the, the streets, the the cafes, the the young men and women, girls and boys. Uh, you can see all these all these improvement in Mosul, and I am I am happy to the skies that Mosul got to where it is now because people deserve it, and it's nice to see Mosul improving that much that you can see people going out at night to have a caf- have a coffee, have a meal with their family, with friends, to watch games at the cafes, and to see girls uh, working in a cafe, in a bookshop, which was not possible before. So because of all these reasons and many other reasons that I, I won't remember to mention them, Mosul is doing very great. Mosul is doing great at the moment, and it could improve better, of course, mm-hmm. but I see it, and I'm, I'm, I'm very optimistic. One thing, actually, I'm interested in uh, asking you is Mosul, before uh, the occupation, was very much, especially in the east side, a Kurdish city. Uh, and I'm, I'm it's, now it really isn't. I mean, it's and so I'm, I'm curious. Do you ever see a Kurdish population coming back to that city? Do you ever see it sort of regaining the diversity that it had before? Or do you you're shaking your head? <laughs> I'm shaking my yeah. head as it will never happen, oh. because this hap- this started in 2003. Mm-hmm. So since 2003, the Kurdish community, the Kurdish families, people, their 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 houses, their family members, their businesses, their like the aspects of life that their their life depend on have been targeted in different ways, mm. um, and. In 2014, when everybody left, I don't think Kurdish community or the diversity that the city had before, it will gain it again. Mm-hmm. Because the Kurdish families who came back to or went to Erbil or went to Dehok to have a safe, to live in a safe place, in a safe city, I don't think they're willing to risk it again to go back to Mosul. And... Uh, so the diversity is not like before. That's a shame. It is, unfortunately. Because it's one of the great diversities of the region. I mean, I don't mean just mean Iraq. I mean, in general, the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. I totally agree yeah. with you. Yeah. <laughs> it's got such a beautiful, long history of just all of these different populations. Yes. Um, and just recently, it's become basically one group of people. Exactly. Um, is something, uh, you know... This is kind of a thing that annoys me about journalists here. Uh, is is there's still sort of a conflict addiction uh, to coverage, and mm-hmm. I don't I don't just blame it on the journalists. I blame it on the outlets as well. Uh, there's a lot of money and emphasis placed on sort of figuring out where the next conflict's going to be, where who's shooting what, what goes boom, where yeah. can we film the boom, yeah. um, and you. Um, you've placed an emphasis uh, on your fixing work ever since on picking projects and finding work that really focuses on. Uh, um, 
uh, unity and and sort of capturing the history, the deeper history of Iraq and and, and Kurdistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just, could we start? Let's start with some of those projects because I'm I'm more interested in sort of your work in the past four years or so. So post the war, it, you know, after the war, I wanted to also show Iraq, its people, its history, not just the war and boom boom and and where's the battle, because. Mm. This is a this is one side of our lives here in Iraq. Mm-hmm. There are other sides which are colorful, which are bright, which are uh, give, showing uh, what our future could be. Um, so I, I I made a documentary about a little town south of Mosul Shora, which uh, which when ISIS came, when ISIS occupied these areas, half of the town joined ISIS, and Fast forward, uh, uh, the sheikh of the town uh, convinced his people, the half of the people who were who were who were who stayed in the town, that they should bring back the families that they have, the women and their children whose husbands or fathers were were killed, who were fighting for ISIS, that they should bring those families back to the town, to to reconcile, to forget what happened up until this moment, mm. and open a new page and and and, and coexist together. Because this is what the sheikh was telling its people. Imagine if we leave our uh, uh, women and, and and their children in the camp without a father. What what do you think they will? What do you think the the children will do in the future? Or how do you think they will end up? They will probably be recruited by an organization and and do horrible things. Mm-hmm. So instead, let's bring them back and forgive each other of how they were connected to the brutal things that we went through and work together to to raise those children in in a human way possible to 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 have a brighter future for all of us so this was this is interesting because what they went through is was not easy mm. uh that somebody's cousin was killed by somebody and its family is living in the town now but well and they're all cousins i mean they're all yeah, cousins this town they're, yeah, they're all yeah, the same tribe they're one tribe yeah. they're all cousins so but to move forward this is what they needed to accept each other to forgive each other to mm. accept each other and move forward move to a better future work for a better future so this was one to this was one documentary i i'm also working on another documentary with uh with the french uh, media that we are shooting, uh, we're doing a documentary about archaeological sites in Iraq, yeah. across Iraq, from the north all the way to the south. And so, because Iraq has a, has a very rich, uh, has a rich history. We, we are covering the Assyrians, the Babylonians mm-hmm. in the south, the Assyrians in the north, the Babylonians in the south, in the marshes, uh, in, in Nasriya. We have all these interesting, rich uh, history that we can tell to to the international world. Uh, can you tell me about some of the findings that you had with that documentary? Because I love this. <laughs> oh yes. So <laughs> I was I was also I was very happy that I was there when this piece was found. So uh, uh, for one of the shootings in Mosul, we were uh, shooting we- with a camera, not with a gun. No. Yes. So <laughs> we were recording uh, for one of the documentaries <laughs> in Mosul. And uh, one of the archaeologists found a piece and uh, told us that uh, this piece was in the shape of a head that looked like a a demon face. And 
so we asked the archaeologist who was a professor, like, can you tell us about this? What is this? Because it's from, I don't know, 5,000 or 6,000 years ago. And the archaeologist, the professor, told us that this is a, a, a piece of accessory that somebody 5,000 or 6,000 years ago uh, wore this as an accessory, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an accessory of fashion to mm -hmm. wear uh, to, for fashion first, and secondly, as a, 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 as a thing to repel bad spirit, bad soul. So imagine, I was, I was interested, I was, I was shocked and, and, and very happy to, to learn firsthand that six, 5,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago, somebody was living here and was so fashionable, possibly a girl, the professor told us, mm. that was thinking, okay, I'm going to wear this demon-faced accessory <laughs> on my clothes today. Uh, so this is our culture. This is our history. This yeah. is this is what we had. Uh, it was. I was. I, I was very happy to to be there when this was found. Yeah. I uh, I'm curious about. Do you have any plans in your your personal life to sort of go into more um, sort of historical areas? Because it seems to be like a very big part for you. Do you have any interest in uh, entering into sort of a more academic uh, uh, area? Uh, with regards to archaeology or any any sort of the lo older cultural aspects of Iraq? I am not sure about that, but mm -hmm. I think um, I am very interested in the archaeological uh, angles mm -hmm. and either making documentaries about them or, or learning about them. Because mm -hmm. through this documentary that I worked on, I have learned so much about Iraq's history. <laughs> it's... It's amazing. It's a great history. I, it's, a long it's history. Great. It's a long history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think I will uh, try to make more uh, work or documentary in that aspect to show the world that we have this uh, this history, that, that the world civilization started here, mm. that, that uh, uh, you know, it's called Bilad al- uh, Sorry, I forgot the name. So it is the, the country between uh, two, two rivers. Two rivers. Yeah. Tigris and Euphrates, exactly. for those who don't know that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> With your fixing work, uh, obviously, the, you know, we don't know what might happen in the future. In this, you know, but based on the past 20 years, uh, uh, fixing work has been largely based around conflict. Mm -hmm. And you're 30 years old? I am 30 years old. Are you? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. Uh, no worries. I... Uh, um, I'm curious, are you thinking sort of more about your personal life, uh, sort of maybe establishing a family and things like that, how that might get in the way of your work or might sort of, you're sort of at an age where, you know, you, your 20s are very much defined by a certain kind of work and now you're, you're sort of transitioning into the other kind of thing. I'm curious personally where you see that uh, going. Um, it doesn't, mm -hmm. so I, I think me moving forward to be How many to... children do you want? <laughs> I want six. What? Yeah. Oh, that was a joke, but okay. <laughs> Why six? Uh, I love children. All right. Yeah. Uh, I love babies, so I want six. Okay. And At uh, the same time? Sorry? At the same time? Well, I don't... How at the same time? Six tuplets. You have the same no, 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 no. Oh, okay. That's that's not pop. Oh, okay. That's All very right. difficult to okay. manage. Yeah, yeah. But six in total. Uh, <laughs> Um, oh. Yeah, but I, I don't think this this will conflict with with my life because um, I can work and also parallelly live my life mm -hmm. because my life is also somehow 
like it's going perfectly parallel with the work I do. Okay. I am I'm at home doing research, calling, uh, finding things through friends, through contacts. Then I'm on the field for for a week, for two weeks, for three weeks, uh, recording what we have found or what we're working on. Mm. Uh, I come home perfectly fine. All right. Yeah. Well, if you can babysit journalists, you can babysit children. You know, it's the same, <laughs> we're basically the same. <laughs> we sunburn easily, but yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't call it babysit. I would call it more like depends uh, on the journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I'm trying to. Uh, well, through that, you call it. Uh, it's more like uh, uh, giving them the information that only a local person would have, mm-hmm. or uh, finding a lot of information from different people or from different angles and share it with the person that you work with. And then picking up some more archaeological information for yourself. Yes, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Halan, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks so much once again to Halan for uh, dropping by the studio to come and talk. Inside Kurdistan is brought to you by the Kurdistan Information Network, and you can check out our podcast on KurdistanIn.net. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at info at Thanks so much. I'm Aaron Weintraub, and this has been Inside Kurdistan. <laughs>